Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org. Seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Peter Dichonui to Raise the Line. Peter is a professor of cinema and media studies and faculty director of the Online Learning Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also an award-winning documentary and virtual reality filmmaker and the author or editor of six books, including Hollywood's Copyright Wars, From Edison to the Internet. His open online course on the history of Hollywood has enrolled over 65,000 learners, and we're very happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'd like to first start with learning more about you and what first got you interested in film and cinema. Yeah, in some ways I've always been interested. It's hard to remember a time when I wasn't. I was one of these kids who made Super 8 films. Uh, I like storytelling and photography, but I was also always interested in the, the history and the theory. And I've kind of throughout my career gone back and forth between being more of a historian and uh, and working more on the creative side. Do you remember what your first film was? I mean, when you were a little kid? So the story is that um, when I was an infant, I was taken by my father to see uh, the Woodstock documentary that Scorsese made. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but actually, um, one film that uh, always kind of sticks out is um, the film Double Indemnity. Oh, with Fred McMurray? Yeah, exactly. I just remember it was a film I saw and I thought, wow, I need to read more about this to, to really know what's going on. Yeah, I was shocked because I only knew Fred McMurray from my three sons. I thought, <laughs> oh, you had a life before that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so you have a quite an amazing range of topics. You have a docuseries, an artist in Puerto Rico, a film about a Jewish community in Ethiopia. How do you go about choosing your subjects? Yeah, so in some ways, there are themes that I keep coming back to, like global migration and the political role of artists, but I definitely don't go about it methodically. Um, usually, there's kind of a question that I can't put down. Um, and then really, it's more about the collaboration with individuals or communities whose stories I want to tell and help amplify. And, uh, and I, that's one of the parts that I really love is, is getting to know people and becoming part of communities. And often, I'll go back to the same communities for many years. And, um, and the other part, of course, is um, is thinking about a way to tell the story visually and thinking about which which medium to use. Is it a VR film or a flat film, a flatty, or I just finished a photography project? Oh, that's a new term for me, flatty. That means yeah. old style film. <laughs> yeah, no, we did, until recently, we didn't need a term for that because that was everything. Right, right. <laughs> well, um, while we're on that subject, so talk to us about virtual reality filmmaking. I think probably a lot of us aren't too familiar with that. How is the process different? And, and obviously, you must think differently about you know, what you're going to present. No, so that's the real challenge and the excitement is it's a completely different way of thinking about making media. And it really just opens up whole new ways of storytelling, I think. In some ways, VR has been around for a long time in, in different formats, depending on how we define it. But it's really just the last six or seven years that the technologies created something really new and, uh, and, and opened up a lot of possibilities. And uh, it's really kind of like making films in 1902, where all of a sudden we're just creating the new style and grammar of storytelling and things that we used to think were mistakes, were jump cuts, might actually be really effective. There are kind of three elements that I think, the way I think about it, there are three elements that make virtual reality storytelling different or make virtual reality a different kind of medium. Uh, the first is presence. So when you are when you put on a headset, you feel like you have, you take up space, you have, you're embodied. The other is um, things you encounter have volume. And I think that dramatically changes the way we interact with subjects, with other people we're watching. They all of a sudden, they, they take up space. They, we engage with them differently. And, and 
uh, studies show there's actually more empathy. So that's, that's a complex uh, and controversial area. But the third is there's also kind of active engagement. You can look around. You don't have to look at exactly what the filmmaker has told you to look at. Uh, and filmmaking is often about this kind of obsessive control. And so it's a challenge to be able to give up some control and uh, create lots of different opportunities and, and experiences. Uh, but also I think it creates a kind of deeper learning. Uh, it's, in, it's like active learning and the experience um, of watching or being part of a VR experience, some kind of deeper knowledge is created. So, you know, you take the, the, the serious subjects that you've tackled that I mentioned. How did you decide which one of those was appropriate for which medium? So um, I only tell you a story about making the film uh, in, in Ethiopia. This was a film where I felt like I wanted more people to see it. And so we decided to make a flat film. I really had something I wanted to say. And um, and so I wanted that control of making a flat film. And for all, all, the, all of that made sense. It's on Discovery Plus now. More people have seen it. Uh, we are able to craft something that more people can see and engage with. But on the other hand, we also brought VR cameras just because we have them and I and I, I like to use them. So I, uh, I I shot a few things. So there's a Torah service we shot in VR, um, Weavers, and uh, and I've just shown those at a few different venues. And actually the experience of people, watching people experience those is very different from watching them see the film. Um, so when people watch the Torah service, they might know more about the religious practices than I do. They might know more about Ethiopian culture than I do. They might know more about building construction than I do, and they'd see things that I didn't know to focus on. So um, for me, uh, that's actually always, I learned more from watching them and engaging with people who are watching the VR than from the, the other film, which I also love and, and you know, uh, like showing. So. Sure, sure. God, that's fascinating. We could obviously spend all of our time on that, but yeah. we do want to get to talking about online learning. You've got a position there with the Online Learning Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. Talk about that initiative and what you do. Yeah, so I do see these as kind of connected. You can see that as I talk about VR, it's often about its potential to open up learning experiences and engagement. And that's partly what online learning does as well. And so I'm in the provost's office, uh, and um, we've had this initiative for about 10 years now. Um, really, we've been offering online courses since 2000, four-credit online courses. But it was uh, MOOCs in around you know, 2011, 2012 that really caused us to start a new a new office, this new initiative, to start really experimenting, at first in non-credit and later in four-credit programs. Uh, the 12 schools at Penn now each have their own separate offices, so there are quite a lot of, of people and a lot of expertise around campus. We have 11 fully online degrees, which is actually a pretty high number wow. for um, a school like ours. Uh, we also have over 200 open online courses, MOOCs, and some of them are, most of them are professional master's degree programs, but we have two doctoral programs. And we actually have the first Ivy League bachelor's program online as well. Primarily, these are for working professionals, people who aren't going to take two years off to come to campus and get an MA. And, and probably a population we've served a little bit, but not as well as we could have. And so um, there's often talk about cannibalization or competition between online and on-campus programs. But really, they were primarily uh, targeting students and, and supporting students who we just couldn't have reached as well otherwise. Just thinking about the, the bachelor's program, for example, it's a BAAS program, a Bachelor of Applied Arts and Sciences. It's a program that's existed in, in one form or another for over 100 years. We had a BA that was for non-traditional students, and it just makes a lot of sense now if you, if you want to reach working professionals, non-traditional students, to do it online. 
And so uh, the, the mission hasn't changed for that program. It's still the same mission of reaching non-traditional students, but uh, the School of Arts and Sciences put a lot of time and effort into talking with faculty and students and employers to think about how to craft a new program that could be delivered online, uh, really scale more than the existing program could, reach more students than the existing program could, and also create uh, different kinds of um, assessments and, and outputs than, than they might've created otherwise. Now, obviously the pandemic changed so much about uh, people's awareness of online education, their use of online education. Talk to us a little bit about that. Has that redounded to your benefit? Or could it maybe lead to more people doing an online degree instead of matriculating? Yeah, we're kind of in an interesting moment, and it's a little hard to to answer that question. Uh, If you ask me, actually, in uh, the early days of the pandemic, um, and, and lots of other people, we had um, a kind of pat answer, which was that the pandemic accelerated online learning. Things that were already changing uh, were just happening a little bit faster. And so instead of working with 20% of the university, all of a sudden I was working with 100% of the university to offer online courses. Our MOOCs doubled in, in enrollment, and that's what most people saw as well. And so it just seemed natural that we would see more uh, of what was already happening. I'm not exactly sure that's the right answer anymore, and that's what the future holds. I think what happened, and this happened in in many aspects of life, is the pandemic was a moment of reflection. And so universities pivoted very quickly, and uh, it was kind of amazing to see people across campus, faculty, administrators, support staff, students, just think about education uh, and, and pedagogy in a really deep and new way. And um, it was clear the goal was 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 the same, which was to offer the best education that we experienced we could, and uh, it, it really just caused a lot of reflection on what that meant, and uh, and so there's a lot of experimentation, and I hope a lot of that continues forward, um, but I but I don't exactly know what the what it looks like on the other side, to be honest. <laughs> what about the work in helping instructors be effective online? Uh, for many, they had some familiarity with it. Maybe some had none. So talk about what UPenn did to support that. We had so many different initiatives. Um, We tried to give faculty a kind of whole menu from taking a two-week course themselves in online education to just looking at online resources that we had created to help to, uh, in some cases, we took 10 kind of high-impact courses, courses that reached lots of students, and we had a whole team work on each one of those courses to rethink it from the ground up as an online course. And so that's those are all resources that we have going forward, and those courses um, are, are forever changed, I think, in a great way. What really impressed me was how many faculty members decided to sign up for the two-week-long intensive course and wanted to just jump in and learn as much as they could about how to be effective online teachers. Something else that surprised me was two years later, we, we had a, just last January, we had a very brief period, a few weeks, where because of, um, of Omicron, we started classes virtually and then went to in-person. And uh, we radically underestimated the number of faculty members who'd want to go back and uh, and do another workshop. Um, and we just, we couldn't even uh, meet the demand for all the faculty who wanted to just keep learning about becoming better teachers. So. Well, that's interesting. So I guess that's another looking forward question. What are you hearing from faculty, aside from that example you just gave about their engagement in this, or are they worried about, you know, needing to live in this world at some point entirely and not have face-to-face instruction? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, sometimes um, people approach this like a, a yes or no question, an either or question. Is online learning better or worse? 
And the answer is really, there's a whole new set of tools and you can teach well or badly in person. You can teach well or badly online. But ultimately, I think uh, that uh, that we have all these new tools and ultimately they can only help make teaching better. I often think about what happened with uh, uh, computers versus chess masters. For a long time, people thought, oh, a computer could never be a good enough chess player to beat a, to beat a person, to be one of the top chess masters because they're just into intuition and they understood the other person they were playing. And of course, ultimately, a computer did beat the top chess master. And, uh, and then what happened was it turned out that even a pretty good chess player with a great program could beat any master. It was the combination of once you had the tool and human intuition, uh, that that was a kind of unbeatable combination. I think the same thing's true of online learning. We have all these tools, and if you put them together with someone who really wants to use them well and, and do a great job in the classroom, that's when you can uh, go the farthest. I mentioned at the beginning you teach a very popular online course yourself. What do you like about the online format? So it's amazing. Uh, in some ways, it's what I like about v, the, the showing VR is you don't know what to expect. And so I put this course together on the history of Hollywood. Um, we It was a lot of fun to do. We actually rented out a, an old movie palace in the outside of Philadelphia and shot a lot of the videos there, which was interesting. Also, it's the, still one of the only courses of its kind because we use hundreds of movie clips. It's very clearly fair use, but it took Penn and the Penn lawyers, um, you know, a, a certain amount of time and study to say, okay, we agree this is fair use and, and we don't need to get permission for all these clips. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what's been interesting is to see the different ways people use it. So some people just watch the videos of me and don't engage at all. Otherwise, it's more like a kind of audiobook or multimedia textbook, uh, which is okay. Other people really want to get the credential and care about the assessments and, and doing really well uh, on that, with that, but other people use it to create community. And so they'll sign on and they'll announce who they are and try to talk to other students and say, you know, I'm, I'm in Mexico City and I want to start a film production company. Who else has had experience with this? Uh, and so it's really interesting to see the different ways people use it. As you know, Osmosis is a company that uses media to educate, and I guess you'd say in a non-traditional way. We love asking our guests to identify something that they want us to work on in terms of filling a knowledge gap or shattering a myth or what, what, what's something along those lines that you really think is important that you say, hey, Osmosis, why don't you guys work on that one? Yeah, so I'll say I'm a big fan of Osmosis. The thing I like most about Osmosis is how learner focused it is. Every detail, it really thinks about the, the student, the learner, and how they can get the best experience, even for the number of words per minute that are used and the way the uh, the animation works. And I know you I know Osmosis started working with Khan Academy. And um, I think there's really this great opportunity that Osmosis has to uh, to be a kind of apolitical scientific authority uh, on issues of science that have become very politicized these days. Uh, and you know, if you and right now, a lot of what you do is for medical students and and science education. Um, but I could see osmosis uh, really being very valuable across a wide range of of fields where we need a kind of trusted authority who can explain complicated concepts very very simply and clearly as osmosis does. Is part of that because the look and look and feels maybe a little more approachable than? A person standing there talking about this stuff, or um, I, my, my guess is that it's the other way around. That um, it's because Osmosis really has tried to to simplify things and communicate them clearly that they've that they, they've settled on this, or you've settled on this look and feel. Yeah. So COVID stepping back broadly, we focus a lot on the healthcare system, of course, on this show. But higher ed is another huge area of overlap with what we do, and. Um, 
wonder what you're thinking about in terms of the lasting impact of COVID on higher ed. Uh, so this is something I've mentioned already, but um, I think we learned a few things about higher education. Um, one is that community is absolutely central to everything we do, uh, to the classroom, to creating cohorts in programs, and also to creating experiences for students who want to connect with each other or with faculty outside of their own disciplines. And that's more of a challenge online than it is on campus when people can bump into each other and have serendipitous experiences. And so that that's one of the things I've been most focused on lately is thinking about how we can bring that sense of community online for students and faculty. Uh, the other thing is uh, we always think about universities moving slowly and we pivoted so quickly and created the infrastructures we needed, the, the, the technical infrastructures, the committees we needed, and, and, um, and we're able to drop things and change. And so we can't, we can't fall back on this notion that universities can't change quickly anymore. We absolutely can. It's interesting. We've heard folks from the healthcare sector talk about that, that, you know, large hospital systems are like super tankers and it took a long time to get anything done. Some of it was because People want to do their due diligence and make sure they're making the right move. But if you'd gone to a hospital president or a college president and said, okay, we've got to move everything online tomorrow, <laughs> they would have said, maybe let's have a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. So that that realization now that they can move more quickly than they thought, maybe not everything has to be studied to death and perfect before they make the first move, could end up creating more improvement, quicker improvement down the road. Yeah. On the other hand, this wasn't through online learning, we know it was an emergency version of online learning. Um, and, and obviously courses, uh, you know, my course took uh, almost a year to create. And, um, you know, it's the, it's the courses where there, there's really the right kind of design and study and research and, you know, follow best practices that we get the highest quality of online learning. So it's, it's some, the answer is somewhere in between the two. Right, right. Yeah. So you obviously deal with a lot of students. Uh, we always like to end these conversations asking our guests to give some advice to uh the students in our audience and early career professionals about approaching their careers? What, what's your favorite advice to hand out? So one of the reasons I think online learning has become so important is that people change jobs more quickly than ever. Their lifespans are longer. Their work lives are longer. The jobs are changing from underneath them faster than ever uh, because of AI and, and other changes. Uh, and so the thing I try to impart to students is, and, and actually try to internalize myself is that um, our careers will change um, quite a lot throughout the course of the career. Uh, and so it, it, it can fall too easily into thinking of yourself as, as one kind of narrow uh, definition uh, of a career um, that can't be changed. Or you can uh, get stuck thinking once you've chosen a career, that's what you're doing forever. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's, it's possible to be re retrained and, and change. And that's one of the reasons there's so much interest in, in online learning right now is uh, people trying to create get new skills, rethink their careers. And, uh, and so there are more opportunities than ever to change. And it's just a part of, of what it's like to, uh, to be, to have a career. Well, you're probably a good example of that. You're an artist, uh, expert in film and cinema, and yet you have this other hat you wear with online education. Yeah, no, so that's true. Was that something you ever sort of envisioned yourself doing? So I don't think so. And uh, it's still sometimes hard to me. I think, oh, I'm a professor. That's my, um, I, you know, I, I write books. That's, that's who I am. Uh, but then there are these other roles that I play. And I feel like somehow there's still, I'm still getting my head around that being part of my identity. So what are you working on now in terms of your, your film work that we can look forward to? Uh, so I just got back from uh, Ethiopia and, and Kenya over the last 
uh, month. And um, the, the film about uh, the Ethiopian Jewish community uh, really takes you inside that community today and hopefully gives you a feeling for what it's like to be there. But uh, I've seen how um, people want to know more about the history and the context. And so uh, I've written a book that gives the longer history from Moses to today, uh, but it's primarily a book of photography. And I was there. Um, and so really, uh, you get to um, learn about the lives of, of people who live there today, uh, specifically as they're preparing for the Passover holiday. So I've always wanted to do a photography book like that. And so uh, that, I'm excited that that's uh, ready to go to a publisher. I also uh, was in Kenya working with a group I've worked with uh, a number of times now over the last five or six years called FilmAid. Uh, so FilmAid is a um, basically a film school in refugee camps. Their, their biggest presence is in two camps in Kenya, Dadaab, which is by the Somali border, and, uh, and one by the South Sudan border called Kakuma. Like a lot of organizations, they've been thinking over the last few years how they can take what they do and scale it and bring it online. And so I brought a group of Penn students to the Kakama camp by the South Sudan border, and they partnered with the FilmAid students, and they put together an online course that's a version of the training program they already have. Uh, and so that will be available um, hopefully in the fall through Coursera, a program they have called Coursera for Refugees, and also to anyone who wants to try to take the course. What a wonderful opportunity for those students, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, it's where the magic happens to see the Penn students and the FilmAid students working together towards a shared goal. Well, I tell you, you have a really cool career that you've built here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to be able to shift between all these things. And it's been really a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Yes, no, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Podcast.